0: Well, good morning, everybody. We on? Yep. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think we've all had those situations in our life where it's kind of like a bad car accident. You just cannot look away or you wonder, how did this even happen? There's this story of Joseph. He's the guy with the fancy coat. You may have heard of him. He has 11 brothers, and they didn't really care for him. So they faked his death, and they sold him into slavery, and anyone who has siblings, I'm sure you thought about that once or twice in your lifetime. (laughs) But uh, before finding out what happens to Joseph, the Bible adds in this brief story about Joseph's fourth oldest brother, Judah. This is one of the stories in the Bible that rival any soap opera or telenovela, and you are left scratching your head. Here in Genesis 38, we find the complicated tale of Judah and Tamar. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to get weird, okay? After Judah gets rid of Joseph, as you do, he decides it's time to move away, and he starts a family. Together, him and his wife, they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And when it was time for the oldest to be married, Judah arranges for Ur to marry a local girl named Tamar. And the Bible refers to Judah's eldest son as a wretched human being. I'm pretty confident if Tamar had her choice, she would not be swiping right on that, okay? So not long after they were married, God wasn't too pleased with Ur's worthless behavior, and so God struck him dead. Yeah, dead is a doornail. So according to Mosaic Law, which you can read in your free time, it's in Deuteronomy 25, it says that if a man died before he had a child, his next brother had to marry his wife, and then their first child would carry on the first dead brother's name, and place in lineage. It makes perfect sense, right? So enter in the second brother, Onan, and he takes Tamar to be his wife, and he makes sure that children do not happen, and he doesn't carry out this law. So God is not thrilled with this situation as well, and he knocks him off too. You would think that their own father, Judah, had to be clued in on this wretchedness of his first two sons. But Tamar and him, they were probably most likely in denial of their children's actions. For me, I'm sure at the back of his mind, not one but two of his sons are dead, and he's probably wondering if Tamar has like this dateline situation thing happening, and Keith Morrison is gonna pop out at any moment. Judah summons Tamar not to comfort. console her, but he tells her, you know what, I think it's best if you go back, live with your dad, and just wait until uh, Shalah is old enough. You can just be a widow until then. So marriage to Shalah is off the table for now, and you just have to think about how Tamar must have felt. She's lived through two arranged marriages, and neither of them were winners, both ending in sudden death. She is desperate, and she has no other choice. She just couldn't go out and get a part-time job and collect life insurance. That's not how it worked. Tamar is sent to live back in her dad's basement, and she probably grieves the loss of not just her two husbands, but the life she never had. She is desperate, and she is left to the promises that were never even there. This woman is an outsider with nowhere to turn. She has hit rock bottom, and we can imagine this seed of resentment starting to bury itself deep within her soul. Hatred, hurt, and heartache are the crosses she bears. Here we find a woman scorned, desperate, and ready for revenge. So I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I kind of subconsciously put my own cultural and social concepts of modern day into the story. Initially, I just think, well, why didn't Tamar just go out and get a job, just save up enough money, get her own apartment, and move on from this horrible family? But the ideals of Genesis 38 and today in the 21st century, they're vastly different. And that's why we really need to think and ask the questions when we read through these Bible stories, because it's easy to put our own story into these uh, stories that are maybe not even there. Women were seen as property, and they were dependent on their husband or their father. And it wasn't because they couldn't provide for themselves. It just wasn't how it was done. Widows were not allowed to own land. So... Tamar without a male in her life they were completely out of resources. However, even in the social landscape what I think is beautiful about the Bible is that God is always so tender and so loving to these underdogs, these nobodies and outcasts. Exodus 22:22 22, 22 says this, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, They cry out to me, and I certainly will hear their cry. I'm not sure what Tamar's relationship was like with God, but based on the text, uh, she never reached out to God for help, but decided to take it upon herself to resolve this situation. So much time had gone by, and Tamar um, had just been thinking to herself, Judah's wife had died, um, and she kind of saw the writing on the wall. Verse 14 says this. Tamar harbored deep resentment towards her father-in-law because she knew by this time that Shalah had grown up, but she had not been given to him in marriage as Judah promised. We all know this is not going to end well. I'm sure you can recall a time where you've been treated unfairly and bitterness has just flowed through your veins and that hurts that somebody else caused maybe in your life, it's built up resentment. Even thinking about it now, I can feel that fire filling up in my chest. I think about those times in my life, and this is usually kind of what goes on in my head. I play out those same stories over and over. I kind of replay what I said, what they said. I start hoping that something similar is going to happen to them. And it all goes in all kinds of different directions. And after a couple of days of marinating in my own thoughts with this hardened feeling, all the way at the end, I remember, oh, where, where's God in all of this? Oh, yeah, I left him back over there a couple days ago, and I've kind of forgotten about him. And before I know it, that teeny little seed has buried itself deep within my heart. Harboring deep resentment is sinful. And really, you know, are you sure? <laughs> but when we hold on to that bitterness, we've been spending all of this time concentrating on everything that is not of God, and we hold on that, to that resentment, and it continues to drag us back from moving forward, and we've taken our focus off of Jesus, and we continue to sit in that twisted state of hurt. Out of that spite, we end up doing things that we regret or we realize later we did not make the best choices. Resentment chokes the life out of us. It grows into this malignant tumor that doesn't allow the goodness of God to live within us. So I'm going to ask you, do you have resentment holding space in your heart? Have you taken the time to examine those hard relationships? Maybe it's how you acted in the past and that still haunts you, or you hold that bitterness towards God, and you're not ready to fully let him back in. So how do we release that? The minute I feel that I've been caught up into this swirl of resentment, I I pray. I pray to take it away, to fill in those cracks that are hardened within my heart, to begin to change that mindset. And the one I absolutely do not like the most is I begin to pray for that other person. That one is really tough. Like any change to occur, you know, that release, it takes time. And every time we do that, we need to replace those negative emotions and thoughts with the truth the truth of the one that uh, we know that we are in Christ alone. Remembering to hold on to that is the most important. God's view of us is the only one that matters. I'm not sure Tamar had that kind of encouragement in her life and that hope. She just had this swirling resentment and frustration and for Judah and sticking to his word that he didn't do. And she decided she was going to take it into her own hands. It says, Tamar learned that her father-in-law would be coming to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, put on a veil to conceal her true identity, and sat down to the entrance of the name along to the road of Timnah. When Judah passed by and saw her, He thought she was a prostitute because she had her face covered. So, he decided to proposition her. I told you, this is going to get real weird. (laughs) This is what Tamar had been waiting for, to trap him. Clothing back then had a very vivid distinction of who is who. So we had people in widow's clothes, people in veils, and then other people had these personal items that marked a visual representation of a part of their story. Clothes can conceal who we are on the inside and what's really going on in our minds. And the same goes for our life when we deal with sin. It's easy to have this veil over our life and to be blind to what we are really doing. So Tamar, she had a proposition of her own, and she resorted to a method that God does not condone for the purposes of securing an endgame. A table was set for Judah, and he chose to pull up a chair. He offered her payment the next day through a goat, very classy, um, but he, she knew his track record of keeping promises, and Tamar, she's super clever, and she asked for his personal steal, seal and staff as collateral. He agrees, they have relations, and they both go on their way. Now, for Tamar, this was premeditated. This was the only way that she knew how to advocate for herself. Afterwards, she went home, I imagine she took a hot shower, and immediately changed back into her widow clothes, and continues to wait. She didn't know if Judah would get her pregnant, It was only a hope, but she decided to keep his items tucked away just in case. Three months later, Judah heard through friends that Tamar was with child, and he was outraged, which I'm like, really? The man who sold his brother into slavery, he doesn't keep promises to Tamar, and he made some poor decisions out of lust. He was the one ready to point a finger of judgment. Okay. Okay. So he went in hot. He proposed that she needed to be burned alive for going against his family's name. And he insisted punishment for Tamar, all the while he should be reckoning for his own. So the crowd gathers, everybody is there, and both Tamar and Judah are present, and he is ready to tear into her. And when it was her turn to speak, she simply takes something out of her bag. And in verse 25, it says, it was the owner of these items who made me pregnant. Please take a close look and tell me whose personal seal, cord, and walking stick these are. I imagine the shock of this moment to be kind of like a Maury Povich DNA episode. (laughs) You know, Maury reaches inside the manila envelope and says, you are the father. It was obvious. Judah's world was shook, and he immediately realized the weight of his actions. It's very reminiscent of the story in John chapter 8, where all the Pharisees, uh, they are gathered with an adulterous woman, and they're ready to stone her to death. And they look over to Jesus, and they're trying to trap him, and they ask him, what do you think we should do? And Jesus responds, let the first stone be thrown by the one among you, who has not sinned. At this moment, Judah has a choice, and I could see this going in a couple different directions. We find you know, the same thing in our own lives as well. When we have that realization that we've messed up, and we sinned, and what do we do with that? So there are usually a few courses of action that we can choose from. The first is deny, deny, deny. <laughs> when my brother and I were in grade school, we had a great aunt watch us in the summer while my parents were at work. And they had this finished basement with this really long hallway. And so we would turn on this kid's record player, and we would run back and forth to Axel F. It was this theme song of Beverly Hills Cop. You know, it... We were awesome kids. We thought we were so cool. Okay. We eventually tired ourselves out and thought, you know it seems like a great idea if we should just like hang off the fireplace mantle. Okay, it was really long. It had 30 or 40 baseball trophies from their sons on there, but that it did not stop us. It was fun until we realized the wooden mantle was not attached to the fireplace wall and everything, the trophies, the wooden beam, it came crashing down with a loud boom. So like any other kids, my brother and I just ran and locked ourselves in the bathroom and acted like nothing had happened. (laughs) We knew exactly what did, and I'm pretty sure my aunt knew as well. But we just acted oblivious and denied it, just like Judah was when it came to his son's behavior. Denial, it is an easy way out, and we don't want to fess up to the truth. The second is shifting blame. As humans, it is so easy for us to shift blame for our own sin, to say, whatever, you know, it's really not my fault. And for Tamar, yeah, she was a victim of a bad situation, but she chose to complicate it even more and hold Judah in contempt. As a parent, you can see this happening in sibling relationships, but I have to admit... I have seen my fair share in the workplace and also within church communities. Grown adults saying, I did this, but it wasn't my fault because this happened and I was tricked. I was in grief. I didn't have enough to eat. I didn't get enough sleep last night. There are so many excuses that we have been accustomed to to blame someone else for our own sin. And the third is owning up to it. It is easy to say, but it's our pride that can be a hard thing to break at times. Just like that contempt, if we don't own up to our failures and keep denying and shifting blame, that pride takes over in our life. The realization where we have failed ourselves and others and God, it is a hard pill to swallow. It's choosing to own up to our flaws. It shows our humility and a willingness to be vulnerable. World War II fighter pilots, after coming back from battle, would have these deep scratches and torn wings on their plane. But instead of covering up those imperfections back up and fixing those planes up, they chose to keep them as they were because it proved themselves and other pilots that they had gone through battle, through the hardships. Just like those fighter pilots, I believe that when we showcase our weakness, we are actually encouraging others to do the same, to be an example. In this moment, in the crowd, Judah, he is filled with guilt. He searches his heart and in front of everyone in the town, he shows his weakness and he confesses that Tamar is more righteous than him. This is actually the first recorded public confession in the Bible. Our imperfections are made perfect only because God allows us the grace to do so, to grow and to build those relationships further ownership allows us to be people in the workplace that are honest, to be the friends and family members who are the first to admit we failed. Let's be sons and daughters of God coming before him daily, recognizing we are scratched and we are broken. And without him, we cannot be authentic. Nobody's going to force you to take ownership in your own life. It's up to you to choose to go public. And guess what? God has your back through the entire way, even when it is uncomfortable. So what's the point? How was Genesis 38's unique, odd story, a keeper, when they put the Bible together? God, he was never even mentioned once. Just like in our lives, we may not see God, but he's always there, behind the scenes, loving and guiding us along the way. So Judah took Tamar into his household, not as a wife, but as the mother of his sons, and she was finally supported. And I have to wonder, you know, she got what she wanted, but was she happy after it all? I mean, you have to think at future family gatherings. How do you explain to their family and your own sons, I was also married to your two brothers who are now dead? I mean, it's confusing. Even when we sin and we confess, a magic wand is not going to just make it all go away. We're going to have to wait. We're going to have to sit in it sometimes. We may not see what God is doing in our lives until we are long gone. Tamar didn't know what she was going to be a part of, and it's hard for us to see why things happen in our life. God, he's not sitting up in heaven, using us as pawns, trying to figure out his master plan. But it says in Psalm 68, 5, he was a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. He's a father who always defends and loves, and in this ugly twisted, complicated story, God does end up winning and redeeming what is lost. Tamar becomes pregnant, not with one child, but with twin boys. Think about that. Tamar married Judah's first two sons, who were the worst, and in God's redemption is now pregnant with twin sons, Perez and Zerah. One of them, continue God's promise to Abraham to start a new nation, and that went from Abraham to Judah, through Tamar, and all the way to Jesus. God's playing the long game here because he does know what is best. Unlike the men in her life before, God saw Tamar. He advocated for her as a loving father would, and now she and Judah were placed into his lineage In the end, these two broken people, they found a place in the greatest of all genealogies. God didn't have to do that. I think this verse captures the hope and the bigger story that certainly the faithful love of God hasn't ended. Certainly God's compassion is not through. These people were the least likely to be a part of something bigger but it's truly only by the grace of God that they were. As we wrap up this ancient wisdom series, we pray that you see a glimpse of God's faithfulness through the triumphant and the broken parts of the Old Testament. This section of the Bible, we see everyone doing what they wanted to do on their own, and it just was never enough. But God is good. His story was never threatened, and he never holds resentment towards us. He knew that we could never live up to his standard of perfection. And that's why Jesus came. It's God's plan of grace to cover our flaws with the death of his own son, Jesus. He has the ability to strike us dead, but you know what? He allows us to be in our weakness so we can be in a place of healing and learning, so we can draw closer to him. Let me give you some of my humble wisdom. This world and all it has to offer, it's never going to be enough for us. We're always gonna feel like something is missing if we do not know Jesus. We will never live up to the standard of perfection that God deserves, and He knows our failures and our flaws, and that is part of our personality, as part of our story. Sin is heavy. It's not fun. Nobody wants to look inward and see our weakness, but you know what? He calls us as His own. He loves us, and He desperately wants a relationship with Him, not a religion, relationship. Jesus takes our pain and he redeems it. He takes our ashes and he creates beauty. And when we feel the weight of the world, he is there to lift us back up. Simply put, he saw the writing on the wall too, that for the rest of time, people would try over and over to make it on their own. And God knew the only plan was to send his own son to earth to allow him to die so that his suffering and his death would allow us to be away from that grave of shame and guilt to find freedom, grace, and hope that one day we can walk with him in the garden. Roman 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the only one that died for each one of us because he knew you were all worth it. If your relationship status with Jesus is it's complicated, let me ask you this. Are you in denial? Are you shifting blame or are you ready to take ownership with a relationship with him. Let's take a moment to marvel at the grace that he has given each one of us while the band sings this next song. Amen, that God redeems our hardest, most impossible, most complicated stories for good.